You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Before we dismiss our students this morning, we want to just take a moment and celebrate a milestone, a tremendous milestone for us as a church family as we move into the children's section of phase two. And uh, by the way, it's, it's very appropriate that we move into phase two uh, on this first weekend of February because exactly five years ago to this weekend, we moved into phase one. And so uh, it's pretty cool that five years later, we're opening up phase two. And by the way, I noticed that we were a little slower getting in here today because you got further to walk once you drop off the kids. Uh, so maybe you have to allot for that, but, uh, but that's okay. In fact, it's so nice back there. By the way, this was an aerial photo somebody took this week drive, flying over our building. That was pretty cool. Uh, but uh, I, I was concerned. I told Scott, who is on our leadership team and has done a lot of the, the work, uh, liaison with the construction company, he with Lee Wagner, and, and I said to him, I said, it's so nice back here. I said, I'm curious if anybody even ends up in the worship center. Do they just stay back there? But uh, uh, we're glad you finally found your way in here, and uh, we're excited about our children being there. And, you know, like I said, five years after we move in here, we're adding phase two. Who knows, maybe five years from now, we'll be tearing down this wall and going into phase three. Uh, to make more room for uh, people, maybe even before that. So, uh, But yesterday morning, as I was uh, doing my daily Bible reading, I came across this Bible passage describing King David's celebration. And it is celebration just even in the preparation for the building of the Lord's temple there in Jerusalem. And although David wasn't able to build the temple, he celebrated simply the plan that was coming together and prayed a powerful prayer uh, for the future of that temple and for his son and the next generation that would enjoy it. And I just, as I read this yesterday morning, I thought, wow, what, what perfect timing. And I wanted just to read it to you as well. It's found in First Chronicles 29, and this is how it reads in verse 10. Then David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Skipping on down to verse 13. O oh, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you. And we give you only what you first gave us. We are here for only a moment. Visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like a passing shadow, gone so soon without a trace. 
And then in a few verses, down in verse 19, David prays for his son, Solomon, and the next generation. He says, Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all your commands, laws, and decrees, and to do everything necessary to build this temple for which I have made these preparations. Then David said to the whole assembly, Give praise to the Lord your God. And the entire assembly praised the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and they bowed low and knelt before the Lord and the King. I thought, wow, how powerful. Even in the preparation for the temple, that acknowledgement that everything came from the Lord and it's to His glory and to His honor. We want to just have a prayer before we dismiss our students for their class, but we want to give praise for God for what he's done. And, uh, you know, we, we as a church, uh, we're, we're trying to learn how to celebrate more. And, you know, and they, they gave out a loud shout. And, um, you know, that might be a little beyond some of your comfort zone, okay? But in our culture, we clap. And so before I pray, let's just thank God for all of his blessings And let's thank God for the opportunity he's given us here to open up phase two this weekend. Would you join me in just praising God? Amen. Amen. On Friday night, I was just walking through phase two as we were moving furniture over there, and I was just clapping, you know. I know if somebody saw me. I was here by myself. People thought, how weird. Okay, Scott was in there putting wires up, but... But uh, I wanted to clap with you. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for what an awesome God you are. Everything we have, everything we are, every resource, every talent, every gift comes from you. And we give you praise and honor. We thank you, Father, for this building. We thank you for the blessing to be able to provide more space for our children and, and for the next generation. And Father, we're We're thrilled with that. We're thankful. And we give you the praise and the thanks. And we ask, Father, that you'll use uh, phase two, this new building, section of our building, to your glory. And that that many children, and and when we renovate the, the children's area for students, that many students will come to trust you, to have a deep love for you. And to to make decisions that will lead them to worship you all the days of their life. Father, because we really want to, to not only live out our faith, but to pass that faith on to the next generation. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today to celebrate what you've done. And we ask, Father, that you will be at work in the children's classes, student class, and in this room, and that your spirit will truly be at work to guide the teachers, to guide me, uh, so that everything that's said will truly speak to every person and draw every person closer to you. It's in Jesus, our Lord and Savior's name that we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and dismiss at this time our uh, junior high, 6th through 12th grade students as we have a class design for us. For the rest of us, we're going to conclude a message series entitled Made New. As we've been examining lessons from an incredible book of the, in the Bible written by the Apostle Peter, one of the first 
followers of Jesus. So during this series of messages, we've looked each week at a chapter from Peter's first letter. So in this fifth and final week of this series, we're going to be reading from the fifth chapter of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can turn to that. Now, this is an excellent opportunity as we're closing out this series of messages to share with you about what we're going to begin next weekend. Um, we're going to start a new series entitled Spotlight. To coincide with us moving into phase two, we're going to spotlight some fascinating characters in the Bible who help share Jesus and his good news with that second generation or that next generation of Jesus followers after those first few followers. So please be making plans to attend and invite others to join us here at Southwest on some very important topics you can see listed in the bulletin as we're going to be considering these important topics, how they apply to our lives, our marriages, our church, and our community. So we want to encourage you to be making plans for that. But as we conclude the, our current focus on being made new, we have to acknowledge that we're not the only entity that's concerned about the next generation. In fact, I came across this commercial. We might be watching some other commercials later today, uh, this evening, but I saw this commercial. Maybe some of you saw it. I thought we would start with this. Day after this Man, that's probably like the worst day of my life. Hello, America. We here at Heinz believe in never settling. Never settling with food. Hey, Randy, take a bite of that naked dog, will you? He won't do it. Demand better. Always. But we also believe in never settling in life. Hand off. And for the past 50 years, the greatest day on earth has been followed immediately by the worst day on earth. You know what I'm talking about. That Sunday. Glorious Sunday. The greatest football day of the year. We eat, we drink, and we be merry. But we do it knowing that we're all just going to accept that the very next day is the worst day of the year. Shame on us. But don't take my word for it. He's the worst morning of the year. Un-American. You're naturally just not happy. Not to mention that annually productivity drops and the country loses on average a billion dollars. Over 16 million people call it sick or do not show up. But for those who do go in... <laughs> now, we know this idea has been tried before, but it never happened. So that's why we're bringing it back. Because we never settle. And neither should you. What do you think about going to work that day? Exactly. It's ridiculous. It is about time that we made that not-so-awesome Monday more like that awesome Sunday. It's a Sunday Monday. Sunday! You could be responsible for the creation of a new national holiday. Click the button, sign the petition, and then send it to your friends and your family. Have them sign it. Do it for the next generation. So... If you want to make sure that we have a national holiday for the next generation, you might want to go to the Heinz uh, website and sign that petition so that we can have Monday off, okay? So we thought we'd have a little fun with Super Bowl being uh, this evening. And some of you are saying, okay, well, I'm not a football fan. Well, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a special occasion. If nothing else, it allows us to dust off our memory of Roman numerals, okay? So... Today is uh, Super Bowl L.I. So as we talk about the importance of understanding that once we've been made new, we've entered into a whole new ball game. 
We're going to draw some parallels today from 1 Peter chapter 5 with the Super Bowl. So bear with us as that's kind of our headings for our different points today to kind of get us in the, the, the mood of, of the day. So we're going to begin as we begin 1 Peter chapter 5 with looking at the importance of the coaching staff and owner, okay? So as we know in the world of professional sports, it begins with the coaching staff, it begins with an owner. So let's begin by looking as we begin reading from chapter 5, the important role of leadership, not just in sport, but in the church. This is how Peter put it in verse 1 of 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In this Bible passage, Peter addresses the elders within the church. And interesting enough, he identifies himself as a fellow elder. Now, Peter does that. Also, the apostle John identifies himself as an elder within the early church. And yet, the apostle Paul, who was never married, never uses that description of himself. And yet, in some of Paul's letters, the apostle Paul's letters, he describes the character description, the profile, the role of an elder in the local church. And he includes in that description of the profile the importance of having experience in marriage. And so, although Peter doesn't get as specific as Paul in his description of the qualification of elders within the church, he does give us some very important descriptions concerning their role and their attitude. He uses two terms to describe this important role within the church. He uses the term that is translated elder in English. But he also uses a corresponding term that that describes the role of the elder as a shepherd or pastor. Okay, that, that's where we get the English word pastor. He calls the elders of the church to be spiritual shepherds within the church, providing pastoral care for the spiritual well-being of individuals within the church. And just as a good coaching staff looks to help each player develop and and utilize their talents and abilities on the team, the elders are called to help to ensure that the members of the church are growing spiritually and finding ways to utilize their gifts and talents within the church. I'm so grateful for the four elders that we have here at Southwest. These four men and their wives, and I think we have pictures of them, are are excellent examples within the life of Southwest Church. I'm grateful for these four couples uh, as they set an example uh, of being committed to being involved and even leading small groups here at Southwest. And, And they also, and I'm not sure if you knew this, but our elders are also coaching the other small group leaders here at Southwest. Now, some of 
uh, you maybe haven't yet connected to a small group, we want to encourage you to do so because we believe that small groups are the way that we can really uh, enter into the to the arena of discipleship and learn what it means to apply these teachings we talk about on the weekend in our lives in a very practical way. And I'm grateful for the way that our elders are leading that charge. I'm grateful for these couples and the godly influence that they are in my life and my wife and I's life, but also in the life of this church. And of course, we're continuing to look for individuals within the church that are willing to take on that role of being a spiritual parent and be a shepherd in the lives of others. So we want to continue to add to their number more and more elders. Peter describes in, in these three parallel statements the importance of leaders within the church. He, he uses three parallel statements. He says, he says, not because you must, but because you're willing. He says, to serve as elders, not pursuing dishonest gain, but to eager to serve. Not, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. We see in these three parallel descriptions that emphasis the importance of elders being willing servants that are godly examples to others within the church. These are individuals who are not looking for personal gain or power, but instead are simply accepting God's call to be spiritual leaders and role models within the church. When we began Southwest 20 years ago, we asked ourselves, what would it look like if we had a church, a, a congregation of God's people, where leaders weren't concerned about position or titles or authority or power, but instead simply embrace Jesus' definition to be a servant leader. I'm so grateful for our four elders and the godly leadership and how they're living out that vision of being servant leaders. Thank you. Now, in the midst of Peter addressing the elders, he reminds them that they're to take their cue from the chief shepherd, or, or literally, if you go back to the original language, the ark shepherd, okay? We've heard of like archangels, he, he describes an ark shepherd. He describes him as Jesus Christ. You see, it's important for us to understand that, that elders are called to be coaches within the church, but, but we need to always recognize who our owner is, Jesus Christ, as Peter describes earlier in his letter, that he has bought us with his blood. So from time to time, maybe you'll go up to one of the elders, or sometimes you'll come up to the ministry staff. I've had people say, your church, and, and, and yes, I take responsibility for, for Southwest Church, but it's important for us to, to realize that this is not the elders' church, it's not my church, it's the Lord's church. It belongs to Jesus Christ. We need to always remember that. Now, after addressing the elders of the church, Peter turns to those who Others are on the team or the team roster, those who are younger in age or in their faith. And he says in verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Peter once again returns to a, a description of a Christian characteristic that he talked about in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, this important, this beautiful Christian 
character of submission. He says, make sure that you're submissive to, uh, to one another. Understanding that that's not just to be the case in marriage, but also in the life of the church. You see, for there to be unity, it's so important, both in marriage and in the life of the church, for there to be a, a spirit, an attitude of submission. That understanding that we're called to yield our own opinions at times, even at times our strong opinions, for, for the overall good of the team. It's an essential ingredient for unity. And I'm grateful for the unity that we experience here at Southwest. And I believe it's so important that we continue to, to hold up that Christian attitude of submission and have that spirit toward one another. I want to encourage every member here at Southwest to do two things to protect and safeguard the unity of our church. The first is to join our elders' example of regularly praying for the unity of this church. I'm blessed with the opportunity to meet from time to time, and in fact, I try to meet regularly with our elders, whether it be for coffee or lunch, or we meet together as a group. And one of the things that just impresses me, every time I meet with one of them or meet with them as a group, they're always praying for unity of the church because they understand for us to continue to grow and flourish we're called to be unified would you join them in praying for the unity of our church something that we are enjoying but we want to continue to hold on to the second thing that we can do to protect the unity of the church is is to continue to embrace this attitude of submission to the lord and to others and to our elders now if anyone knows me well, they know that I'm not a New England Patriot fan. As a long-suffering Colts fan, at times I've despised the Patriots because as a Colt fan, we've had some deflating experiences with the Patriots. <laughs> yes, I went there, okay. And yet, this week I heard a quote from Tom Brady that really inspired me. When he was asked the secret for the success that he and Coach Belichick have had through the years, he said it this way. He said, I've never forgotten that I'm the player and he is the coach. I thought that's that attitude of submission. And when your star player understands that, it kind of just affects and impacts the whole team. So I think that's a, that's a great illustration of submission. Now, by the way, for my track record of rooting for the winning team, if you're a New England Patriot fan, you might start getting nervous, okay? For me to hold them up as a, as a good example, that might mean they don't do too well today. In fact, that's kind of, I'm trying to use reverse psychology here and try to act like I'm rooting for the Patriots this morning. And yet, after all the coaching, leading, and practice, it's still important to suit up and put on the team uniform. And let's see what Peter has to say about what, how the members of the church should suit up. At the end of verse 5, he says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
Peter quotes an Old Testament proverb when he writes, God opposes the proud but shows favor or extends grace to the humble. I like what one writer and scholar had to say about this verse. He said, we hear so much of humility within early Christian writing that it's easy to forget that until this strange movement of Jesus followers, nobody outside a narrow strand within the Jewish tradition had regarded it, humility, as a virtue. Now, regardless of how rare this Christian virtue was in Jesus' day or in our day today, Peter says, clothe yourself with humility. He doesn't say just add, you know, Uh, some accessories of humility. Don't put on the bracelet of humility or the scarf of humility. He says instead, make sure your wardrobe, that you're covered with humility. Now, as I read that, I asked myself, how have I been doing in the area of humility? And I wanted to ask you, how are you doing in the area of humility? How about at work? Have you been clothed with humility? How about at home? Are you clothed with humility? In your relationships with others in the small group you're part of or in the church, are you clothing yourself with humility? Why is this so important? Because Peter is about to reveal to us next that Jesus' followers have an opponent. Now, the opponent in Africa, Athletics is important for us to know who we're competing against. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What are their tendencies so that we can defeat them? You can, you can believe that the Falcons and the Patriots have been studying game film over the last two weeks, being preparing for their game tonight. It's interesting to note that, that throughout this letter, Peter has emphasized that Christians are following a suffering Savior and that they should not think it's strange that they will also suffer. In fact, we talked about throughout this series how this theme of suffering just keeps showing up in 1 Peter. And finally, in the very end of his letter, in the fifth chapter, he tells us ultimately who's behind that suffering. Listen to how he describes it, our opponent in verse 8. He says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. How does Peter describe our opponent, the devil? He describes him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. As I was preparing for this message, I I thought it would have been really cool if in the Super Bowl it was the Lions versus the Saints, okay? I mean, we could have really made, I I know that's not possible because it's Detroit, right, Jamie? I mean, you know, but, but also they're in the same conference. I know that can never happen, but I just thought that would be cool if the Lions were playing the Saints. Peter says, if you're a follower of Jesus, realize your opponent's. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And he tells us that to be victorious in this match with the devil, he says, resist him. 
Now, some today are so sophisticated, they say, well, there isn't such a thing as a devil. And I, I don't believe he's in a red suit with a pitchfork, but I believe there is this opponent out there looking to devour us. And we have to be aware of him. And one way to resist him is to be aware that he, ex he exists and to be aware of his schemes and his tendencies of how he tries to tempt us individually and even as a church. Now, here's the question for you and for me. How are you doing in the areas of resisting the evil one? Are you resisting him in your personal life? Or are you just caving in to those temptations and traps he puts before you? Peter goes on to tell us how we can specifically resist the evil one. He gives us a more specific game plan. Let's go back up to verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What does Peter say? He says, humble yourselves, but he says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Have you ever noticed that anxiety leads to so many sin, sins in our life? If you think about it, anxiety seems to be what Satan uses over and over again to trip us up. It leads us to worry. It, it leads us to overeating, overdrinking. It leads us to lust, harsh words, resentful words. Peter says, don't give in to anxiety. Instead, cast your anxieties. Throw your anxieties onto God's lap. Have the humility to realize that you can't figure out all of your problems yourself, and yet God is big enough for any problem that you might face. I find it fascinating that Peter, who was a fisherman, would use such a strong verb to describe how we're to cast our anxieties upon the Lord. I couldn't help but think about as a fisherman, he would cast the nets, right? They would throw the nets off the side of the boat so that they could fish. I'm not a very good fisherman. In fact, I really stink as a fisherman, okay? And there's a number of reasons. One, I've been told I talk too much, and so the fish aren't going to be around me while I'm fishing. I, it's hard for me just to be quiet. The other thing is I'm impatient. But the other thing is I, I'm not good at casting. I've had a number of people try to show me how to cast, and I just don't seem to get that. And I think part of it is because I'm not willing to let go as you're supposed to let go. I'm trying to hold on to it myself. And I thought about that. Those areas in our life that we tend to be anxious, are we holding on to them? Or are we really casting them and letting go and letting God work, letting God take care of those? You see, I think one of the devil's biggest tricks in our life is to tell us, you've got to figure it out. And Peter says, no, there's some challenges, some problems you face that are just too big for you. Humble yourself and cast those anxieties upon the Lord. You know, he goes on 
He lists another important, crucial ingredient for the Christian game plan. In addition to humility and trust and casting anxieties upon the Lord, he reminds us in verse 10 the importance of trusting God's grace. In verse 10, he says, In the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I've tried to understand the connection between standing firm against our enemy, the devil. And I was curious why Peter immediately, when he's talking about our opponent, he immediately turns to the subject of grace. Why do you think Peter turns to grace? Well, as I think about my own life, I see a direct correlation. You see, when I think about my own spiritual journey, I, I, I'm seeking to do what is right. I, I'm seeking to say no to sin. I'm, I'm really, truly trying to follow Jesus. And yet I mess up. I'm far from perfect. And I find myself, even when I try to do what is right, I still find myself messing up. And then when it seems like I'm going through a season where I'm thinking I'm doing pretty good, then I slip up. I allow pride sometimes to creep in, and I think I've got this figured out, and then I slip and mess up, and, and I think something, I say something, or I do something I shouldn't do. And I think one of our opponent's biggest tricks and schemes in our life is to try to get us discouraged when we fall. To where we throw up our arms and just say, this is useless. I just can't do this Christian thing. And in the midst of talking about our opponent, Peter reminds us of grace. You see, grace is that God gives us the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, not because we deserve it, but because we need it. That's what grace is. And, and here Peter reminds us, he says, in your battle with the opponent, remember to stand firm in grace. Because when we realize that we're not saved or we're not declared right with God based on our performance, but we're declared right with God based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us, it can give us confidence to get back up when we fall and to continue our fight. And to continue our journey. Our last and final football illustration for today. And for those of you that aren't football fans, you're going to say, boy, I'm glad, I'm going to be glad when this message is over. I'm tired of all the football illustrations. But even if you're not a football fan, you'll probably watch tonight, if nothing else, for the commercials or the halftime show. And while Lady Gaga is singing tonight and performing, there's going to be some really important halftime things going on with the teams where there's some halftime adjustments and some motivational speeches to inspire the team to finish strong. And as Peter closes out his letter, he gives us some motivation to finish strong in the Christian life. In verse 12, he says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. 
Stand fast in it. Stand in the grace, Peter says. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. As we wrap up this fifth chapter of this great book, 1 Peter, we see Peter inspires his readers with a reminder that they have fellow believers throughout the world that are facing the same challenges that they are and that they are all in it together. Peter points them to examples like Silas and Mark and he mentions Babylon and I think there he's talking about the church in Rome. That's code for for Rome, Babylon. And he leaves them with this final reminder of peace. Peace that they can experience now and in the future. A peace that they can can hold on to if they will just stand in the grace of God. Peter's reminding those early Jesus followers and he's reminding us that we can have peace and confidence in our relationship with Christ, even at times within intense battle, not because of our perfect performance, because it's not perfect, but because of the grace that we stand. You see, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have peace because of the one that Peter trusted and the one that we're called to trust. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Therefore, since we've been made right with God, made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for us. We close out our messages here at Southwest by observing communion. And as we think about how Peter closes out his book with the call for us to stand firm against our opponent, to stand firm in our faith. He tells us to stand firm in the peace that's found in the grace of God. As we observe communion today, it's a time for us to examine ourselves and say, how are we doing in our personal battle? Are we resisting the evil one? Are we saying no? Are we clothing ourselves with humility? But also it's a reminder for us to where we put our hope. Our hope is not in our perfect living out the Christian life because we don't. But it's in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, let's remember the peace and the confidence we can have standing before God based on what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you for this this letter that we've read the last five weeks and how it's so practical and so applicable to our lives. And I pray, Father, as we close out this book that we will truly resist the evil one in our lives, that we'll truly humble ourselves toward you and toward others so that we can be unified with you and with others in your name. And yet, Father, we're thankful that our hope and our confidence and our peace comes not from ourselves, but from what Jesus did for us. 
Help us celebrate that. And remember that now as we take communion together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. You're calling me over. You're pulling me close. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. 